it was time. Susanna Hoffs had only been back in LA for a minute, but that was a minute too long since she'd last made music. Her time at UC Berkeley had come to an end, and with it, her relationship with music and romantic partner, David Roback. Years later, Roback would rework his and Hoff's sound and even some of their songs into Mazzy Star. But that, that was Roback's future, and this was Susanna's now. In a toilet stall at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, she pulled a stack of flyers from her purse, ready to lay an offer at the throne of rock and roll. One of her favorite bands was on the stage, the cantankerous punk-meets-pop girl group, The Go-Go's. They were fun and fierce, the kind of girls who'd sneak out windows during sleepovers with flasks tucked in their waistbands. And the Go-Go's were going places. Susanna was as sure of that as she was of the lyrics to All Follow the Sun. It was exactly the soundtrack she needed to take this next step. Some of Susanna's earliest memories were listening to the Beatles with her mom. Drives across LA were soundtracked by Radio Top 40. When she got to college in the Bay, she began hunting for those 60s hits on vinyl. But record shopping quickly turned from hobby to obsession. Susanna had an insatiable hunger for whatever was more psychedelic, more dreamy, more rare. At the same time, she was seeing bands like the Patti Smith Group and the Sex Pistols. Acts like Blondie were breaking out of the club scene and onto the radio. When she first heard the Ramones, she thought, I know these cards. I could do what they're doing. Growing up, the Beatles had represented an exciting but distant idea of stardom. She was some weird dancer-turned-art student. Punk made performing feel possible, attainable. Like she didn't have to be cool or polished or have some insider connection to be successful. By the time she graduated in 1980, all Susanna wanted was to be a rock star. Back home in LA, she found herself asking, Where do I go from here? Making music with Roback had been satisfying. They were still friends, but their collaborative spark had fizzled with their relationship, and she didn't think she wanted to work with another guy. When Susanna listened to the Go-Go's, she heard a girlish confidence, the naive freedom that comes from facing down womanhood but being too drunk on adventure and possibility to embrace it. That wasn't a feeling she could capture collaborating with men on bright blue paper and bouncy angular letters, Susanna wrote, Girls, I'm forming Boss All Girl Group. Rockabilly, Psychedelic, Surf Music, Mercy Beat. Guitar, Drums, Bass. Love, Go-Go's, The Last, Bo Brummel's, Birds, Blue Caps, Ventures, Modern Lovers. Must be nice. Call Sue weekdays after 5.30 and weekend. She left the flyers in the women's room, like an invitation to a secret clubhouse marked No Boys Allowed. Then she checked her hair and rejoined the crowd. A year later, the Go-Go's would release their first record, and Susanna Hoffs would have the first lineup of the Bangs, eventually becoming the Bangles. Five years later, the band would be selling out stadiums, like they were the Beatles, with more exciting hair. But to say this triumph in the toilets was when the bangle started isn't totally accurate. 
Obviously, you can't reduce a band's origin to any one moment, but what I really mean is you can't listen to the bangles without hearing the earliest wails of the runaways. To walk like an Egyptian, someone had to let off a cherry bomb. Now, it wasn't exactly Mickey Steele who lit the cherry bomb, but we could say she held the matchbook. Maybe soak the fuse in gasoline. Whatever role you want to assign her in this metaphor, she's one of many important connections between the runaways and the bangles. In our last episode, we learned that Mickey Steele was the original bassist and lead singer for The Runaways, the first all-girl hard rock band to achieve any mainstream success. I revealed that Mickey Steele became Michael Steele, the bassist for The Bangles, a band we know for such hits as Manic Monday and Hazy Shade of Winter, which is to say they have been a very commercially successful all-female rock group. Today, we'll talk about Mickey's time in The Runaways. Why was it so short-lived? And how did she end up in this huge girl group nearly half a decade later? We'll also go into more detail about The Runaways' early shows, listen to some of their first recordings, and see the beginnings of a blueprint for California punk. I'm Miko Caporell, and you're listening to Bad Reputation, a women's rock history podcast. This is episode two of our ongoing series, The Runaway Runaways. When we last spoke of Mickey Steele, Joan Jett, and Sandy West, they had just been abandoned by Lita Ford and decided to forge ahead as a trio. At this point, they'd only been together a few weeks, but they were learning songs at a breakneck speed. Their early repertoire included a lot of 60s classics like Wild Thing. Two of their first originals were American Nights, and Thunder. But it's worth noting, these weren't actually originals. They were leftovers from the Hollywood stars that Kim Fowley had co-written. Putting these in the mix was the beginning of a problem it took years for the band to see, and decades to recover from. Fowley, pushing songs he owned the publishing rights to, so he could collect the royalties. Now, he did encourage the band to write their own songs, and this included contributions from Carrie Crome, the budding songwriter who was contracted to Fowley, which meant he got the publishing rights on her songs. What stands out about the Runaway songs, though, isn't how Fowley cashed in on them. Each woman came from a very different background. Different classes, different education levels, different family sizes, different sexual orientations. But together, they managed to pin down shared themes of Californian adolescence. Sunshine, parties, fighting with parents, breaking rules, having sex. Their songs were a sonic collage of teenage longings and desires. What it meant to tell off authority or be spurned by a lover. Rock themes men had long exercised purview over, now being done by West Coast babes. Of course, much to the band's annoyance, Fowley still found ways to insert himself into the process. Sandy later wrote in her diary, Fowley isn't musical. This may sound strange, but even though Kim is in the music business, he's not really a musical person. 
He's an idea man. He doesn't play an instrument. He doesn't compose music. He just comes up with words and concepts. During rehearsals, Fowley would run what he called heckler's drills. In the Runaways movie, the band practices in a beat-up trailer where they're pelted with beer cans and dog shit. In actuality, they rehearsed in a shabby room above a drugstore in West Hollywood. While Fowley did throw stuff like garbage and cans, he did not throw poop. Mostly, he would throw insults. Sandy claimed he threw mayonnaise once too, but it's unclear if it was in a jar or just fistfuls of the stuff. Supposedly, all this was to make the band resilient to anything audiences might unleash. Joan and Sandy took this in stride. This was for their own good, whatever made them stronger. But Mickey was not so pleased. This displeasure was the first thing that made her stand out in the group. After running these kinds of drills, you'd think the Runaways' next stop was the stage. But the Runaways entered the studio first. Actually, their performance debut was preceded by not one, but two recording sessions. Their first demo was recorded on a reel-to-reel, and the second was recorded at Gold Star, ground zero for a number of famous tracks, including the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations. Of course, using the same audio equipment as the Beach Boys was no guarantee. Nothing could save the Runaways from Fally's record-it-fast-and-cheap approach. When they cut their first demo, the band was about a month old. Fowley rushed them into the studio because shows didn't make money, records did. And Fowley wanted to collect on his investment as quickly as possible. But obviously, no one was going to buy a Runaways record if the band never performed. So, once the demo was taken care of, Fowley started bringing anyone associated with music to watch the Runaways rehearse. He was hoping to get some buzz going to land the right first gig. One of those early invites went to Fast Freddy Patterson. As I mentioned last episode, Patterson was the editor for Backdoor Man, a music fanzine published well before home printers. He was barely older than the Runaways, but he'd figured out a way to organize, finance, print, and distribute a music publication. Not the easiest feat in 1975. This gave him a lot of cultural cachet, especially amongst teenagers. Fowley had enough connections that he could have debuted the Runaways at a club, but he didn't want that. He wanted something under the radar. That way, if they were terrible, nothing was lost. And if they were amazing, they'd have street cred. Here's what Patterson wrote on the flyer for the first Runaways show. Hey kids, I'm going to have a party and you're all invited. It'll be this Friday, August 12th at around 8pm or so. It's for the debut performance of The Runaways, an all-team girl hard rock power trio put together by none other than Kim Fowley. Should be lots of fun. Please cool it on the dope though. We'll have enough trouble with the fuzz with the loud music and all, you know, don't want to make things worse. I'm sure most of you have been busted before. Most of us have. Be there or be square. Interestingly, the show actually happened September 12th, not August 12th. But that's a typical detail in the Runaway story. Nothing's ever as exact as it should be, but the big picture's there. 
And in the big picture, we know Patterson still lived with his parents and that they were out of town that night. So why not throw a little party? Except in the 70s, attaching a band to a house party could easily draw a few hundred to a few thousand people. Rock and roll history was made in a salmon-colored suburban home in Torrance, California. Ironically, as far as I can tell, most people who were there that night don't remember the show. Patterson doesn't even remember it. Later, Sandy would say Mickey had been paralyzed by stage fright. Joan would describe herself this way, but if anything was off about the Runaways' performance, it wasn't something beer, weed, and amphetamines couldn't erase. A big obstacle to collecting oral history on these events is the amount of substances involved when they happened. One thing's for sure, though. The novelty of three hot teenage women playing rock and roll was enough to make them a big hit. For two more weeks, the Runaways continued playing house shows around Orange County and the South Bay. Then Fowley decided they were ready for their Hollywood club debut. It was a Sunday afternoon at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go. The bar was packed with friends, family, and Fowley pals. One backdoor man columnist described it as a sea of satin and suits with quote-unquote no shortage of tight sequin t-shirts and rhinestone jeans. Even as a trio of inexperienced team musicians, though, the Runaways got people shaking in their rhinestone jeans. Here's a bootleg sample from that early show. musicians are some degree of self-taught. But in 1975, there was a general expectation that, to be on stage, you had to have some mastery over your instrument. It could be a garage rock level of mastery, but audiences expected a baseline competency. You heard the clip, the Runaways weren't incompetent. But they didn't bring the kind of polish most people expected to see at a place like the Whiskey. The Whiskey-A-Go-Go had given the world go-go dancing. It helped make bands like The Doors legends. The Runaways were literally learning their instruments and how to rile a crowd as they performed. So imagine what a revelation it was to see three women getting their music education in real time. They were in a fairly high-profile Hollywood club, and they'd only been playing together for about two months. While it was the kind of gig only Fowley could have arranged, being there required the Runaways to have a fuck you, I deserve this attitude that changed the LA scene. Plus, what they lacked in experience, they made up for in charisma. As a freshly formed group, the Runaways' set list was short and their time on stage long. To occupy some of that time, they held a dance contest. 
One standout competitor got so engrossed in the competition, she threw off her hat and skirt. Then she did a bump and grind and tore off more clothes, including her blonde wig. She writhed around in a G-string only to get goosed by Freddie Patterson, who stole her wig and first place. These were the kinds of playful antics Punk was all too happy to absorb. But there was another thing that stood out about the Runaways' first club show. As Mickey prepared for a song called Yesterday's Kids, she leaned into the mic and started ranting about quote-unquote outdated people who tried to pick up on girls like her. Which was really inspiring for someone in the audience who yelled, Yeah, Kim Fowley! All that aside though, their Hollywood debut was as successful as their house show debut. And word of the Runaways at the Whiskey spread fast. The band played there the next night, too, and when they arrived, their dressing room was packed with fans and onlookers. Within days, it even prompted a change of heart from Lita Ford. In some accounts, Lita says she called the band and asked them to take her back. In others, she says they begged her to come back. They just couldn't get by without her amazing playing. Either way, Lita rejoined the group. But the foursome was short-lived. Joan, Sandy, and Lita felt united in dishing back what Fowley gave them. But Mickey felt the opposite. On Halloween, this lineup of the Runaways played its last show together. It was three months after they had formed and one month after Lita had rejoined. A few days later, Fowley fired Mickey from the band. This is the Fowley version of their phone call. Mickey, so sorry to disturb you, but do you know why I'm calling you? Can you guess? You're firing me because he found somebody the rest of the band's age. How do you feel about it? It's best for your project and their project that they get someone their age because I have other concepts and other things I want to do, and I feel restricted by what the runaways are being turned into. I wish you the best of luck. I wish you the best of luck. And this is how Mickey described what happened. You've got no megalo, you have no magic. This is the only chance you'll ever have to be a rock star, and you've blown it. Years later, in a written interview, Michael Steele said, The official story was that ideologically I wasn't in line with the others, but early on this thing started with Kim, this sordid personal angle. He was enamored of me in a way that I found very uncomfortable. I'd been raised in a sheltered manner and wasn't savvy enough to know I could say, Come on, Kim, fuck off. I got in my head that he would throw me out of the band. But I didn't want to say yes because I definitely wasn't into it. I dealt with it by trying to stay neutral, but the pressure started building and building. My performance went down the tubes. I started going nuts from it. In another interview, she added that a record executive had promised Fowley he'd sign the band if they got a blonde singer. Jackie Fox, who eventually replaced Mickey on bass, said the same thing. Freddie Patterson told the Runaways biographer, Evelyn McDonnell, that Fowley had indicated as much to him, too. But Patterson also confirmed that Mickey complained about Fowley coming on to her, and he agreed that was probably true, too. Shortly before being fired, Mickey had confided in Sandy that she was thinking of leaving. She wanted to play more creatively challenging songs, and the heckler drills 
the way Fally talked to the group, his constant sexual pestering, they were just too much. Sandy noted this in her diary. She categorized Fally's treatment of Mickey as abusive and agreed he came on to the teen singer an awful lot. But she also wondered, did Mickey have the right personality for a band? As though refusing to tolerate Fally's behavior meant she wasn't cut out for a career in music. On the one hand, Sandy seemed to know what Fally was doing was wrong. But on the other, she seemed to read Mickey's refusal to emotionally distance herself from the treatment as weakness. Mickey had long wrestled with how to comfortably make music with men, especially in a way that felt true to herself. In high school, Mickey had played acoustic guitar, what she calls her Joni Mitchell phase. Playing acoustic guitar was great, but Mickey sensed pouring herself into a mold of one of the few high-profile female musicians of her generation was holding her back. Joni Mitchell was a soft, folky solo artist, and Mickey, Mickey was ready to rock with a group. One day, she went to the house of a friend who was the son of a prominent guitar strings manufacturer. The walls were lined with different instruments, including bass guitars. She picked one up and felt an immediate connection. Here's a clip of her describing that moment. I picked it up and I kind of went and started playing. This is kind of cool. You know, this is kind of cool. You know, maybe if I get good on this, the boys will let me play with them. (laughs) (laughs) While the Runaways weren't Mickey's first band, she was still pretty inexperienced when she joined them. It was probably affirming to be making rock music with other women and for her gender to be treated as an asset, not an obstacle. So getting fired because she didn't want cans thrown at her or she wouldn't fuck the manager cut pretty deep. Spiraling depression deep. Move back to Pasadena, don't wash your hair, stop getting out of bed deep. When the fog of her depression began to lift, Mickey made a resolution. She was never playing in an all-girl band again. She also decided to legally change her name. In 1976, Sue Thomas became Michael Suzanne Steele in the eyes of the state. But where did this name come from anyway? Suzanne was her given name, and Steele was her stepfather's surname. Why Michael? My theory is that it was a way to reclaim her identity from Fowley without having to distance herself too far from the stage persona she established. It's also the kind of name that says, women can do anything men can do. Like, who says Michael is a boy's name? But who knows? Maybe she just really likes the name Michael. When reporters first started asking about her name, Michael would tease she'd had a sex change to get into the Bengals. Today, this isn't the most enlightened joke, but it shows a woman with an awareness and sense of humor about her name. It also flipped the script on standard women in rock stories, where women talked about fighting to get men to take them seriously. By joking about having a sex change, Michael positions herself as someone who is always taken seriously. Not only that, but she suggests the Bengals are so good, it's worth giving up what's now commonly understood as male privilege to get in. 
Of course, in 1976, she had not been taken seriously yet. And she was still very wary of playing with other women. She didn't feel like Joan and Sandy had had her back. They were trying to play a boy's game by boy's rules and weren't extending her solidarity or sympathy if she wanted to push back against that. It left Michael feeling like she might as well just play with men, but she was still trying to process her runaways experience. Fowley had always praised Michael as a singer, but he'd also said things like she quote-unquote couldn't play bass for shit. So when Michael started seeing the runaways in magazines, she felt incensed, outraged, persecuted. Fuck this Fowley guy, she was supposed to be in those magazines. Was he right? Did she not belong there? Was she not good enough? No, no way, Fowley had no idea what she was capable of. Instead of giving up, Michael resolved to play as much as possible, in as many bands as possible, to become the best bass player possible. She would die before she let Fowley be right about her. While his rejection hurt initially, Fowley's discouragement eventually gave Michael a scorched earth sense of confidence. But it gave her a lot of anxiety too. She always felt like she had to over-prepare if men were going to see her as even remotely on their level. One former bandmate recalls her nailing every note during an audition for a group called Tony and the Movers. He thought she practiced to a bootleg ahead of time because she was so determined to prove her competence. It wasn't a bad approach. She went above and beyond everyone else who auditioned and it made Tony and the Movers really want her. Her diligence about practicing helped her develop a natural sense of rhythm and bandmates recall her clearly enjoying playing. Collaborating with her felt effortless and she was always the most prepared during rehearsals and shows. But she was always nervous to be seen as good enough, capable enough. Like she had to work twice as hard to be taken half as seriously as the men around her. And her commitment never seemed to be enough to take bands to the next level. Despite her tenacity, none of her post-Runaways bands took off. Between 1975 and 1982, Michael drifted in and out of some 14 musical projects. Obviously, none of these bands' successes or failures were solely on her, but you can imagine how burnt out she was feeling by 1982. At this point, she was working part-time as a cashier at a car wash and just playing gigs when she could. Wasn't she ready to give up on this rock thing? Michael's mom wanted her to throw in the towel and become a dental hygienist. Come on, honey, it's time to settle down. But before we get to how Michael avoided life in a dentist's office, let's catch up on everything that happened after Susanna flyered the whiskey. For starters, Susanna's flyers did not attract anyone we know as a bangle. And neither did the subsequent ad she placed in the alt-weekly, The Recycler. It was her response to someone else's ad in The Recycler that connected her to Bengals guitarist and drummer, Vicky and Debbie Peterson. Susanna saw a notice for a female guitar player. Unbeknownst to her, it had been placed by a British woman named Amanda. But when Susanna rang her up, Vicky answered the phone. 
Before Amanda had a chance to hop on, Susanna and Vicky were connecting over a deep, deep love for the Beatles. Both women had listened to Beatles records so hard they'd worn them out. When John Lennon was shot in 1980, both women had felt jolted. Anything could cut their lives short, they realized. They had to seize their dreams now. After a few exchanges, Susanna decided she liked Vicky more than the woman who'd placed the ad. So she invited Vicky and her sister, Debbie, over to jam in her parents' garage. The trio's connection was immediate and intense. Something they wanted to go all in on. All three have likened it to getting married after a first date. They just knew they wanted to take a long musical journey together. Soon, they added Annette Zelinskis on bass, and the group started playing shows as the Bangs. At the time, LA was in the beginnings of what's been dubbed the Paisley Underground. This was a collection of 60s dream pop-inspired garage bands like the Dream Syndicate and Rain Parade. With plenty of like-minded groups to share the bill, the Bangs attracted a modest but committed following. Some a little too committed. Male fans often followed them into bathrooms and dressing rooms before shows, trying to catch peaks of them changing. All that attention, but still no record deal. Frustrated, but determined, they took matters into their own hands. By day, the girls were working in places like factories and fast food restaurants. But at night, they were living out their rock and roll dreams every chance they got. They'd seen self-publishing open doors for a lot of bands in the punk scene. That year, it would work for people like Joan Jett and Motley Crue. So they pooled what little money they had and self-released a single called Getting Out of Hand. Then, Susanna put on her shortest miniskirt and marched the single over to the Odyssey. If the Bang's looks were turning people's heads, she'd use them to force the Bang's music on them. So, it's 1981. Rodney's English disco is long gone, but the gender-fluid, decadent, music-driven party scene Rodney's had helped establish is still very alive. The Odyssey was a gay disco club with an outer space theme, and it filled a lot of the musical and cultural void left by Rodney's. DJs were a big deal at this moment, and the Odyssey always had the hippest and most cutting edge ones. And because of how indebted it was to Rodney's, Rodney Bingenheimer was a Monday night DJ there. Well, it wasn't just Bingenheimer's legacy. Since 1977, Rodney had been hosting a radio show on K-Rock called Rodney on the Rock. It had become very influential. And when I say influential, I mean this show was really influential. Bingenheimer played what you'd expect to hear on college radio today, except he did it with a much wider reach during a time when radio actually mattered. He was the first radio host to play everyone from the Sex Pistols to No Doubt, and he catapulted the song 99 Luft Balloons to number one, just playing it in passing during an interview. Even in 1981, Susanna knew getting on Bingenheimer's show could be a game changer for the bangs, so she was determined to grab the disc jockey's attention. 
hunting him down at the Odyssey paid off. Bingenheimer was enamored with Susanna and thought the bangs sounded like an 80s take on the mamas and the papas. He put getting out of hand on heavy rotation and immediately the bangs audience quadrupled. They even caught the attention of Miles Copeland, founder of IRS Records. Copeland's staple of artists included bands such as The Police and, if you recall from earlier, The Go-Go's. But the Bangs were very upfront. They did not want to be treated as the poor man's Go-Go's. Copeland agreed, and together they put out a five-song EP. On the eve of its release, though, they received a legal notice from an all-male band in New Jersey. These guys had copyrighted the bangs and were demanding upwards of $40,000 for the women's right to use it. Distraught, they scrambled to rename themselves. How could they surrender the bangs? It was short, energetic, almost like an onomatopoeia for something drastic. And it was kind of musical like the word beat. That's when it clicked. In a nod to their heroes, the Beatles, they decided to add an L-E-S and become the Bengals. Shortly after the EP came out, the Bengals went on their first tour. They were the opener for another IRS band, a ska group called English Beat. So you can probably imagine, this was not the ideal audience for the Bengals. They played to an ocean of black leather jackets and middle fingers, Every show ended with them covered in spit. Sometimes their tour manager would have to cut gum from their hair. One night, Susanna was even pelted in the head with a milk carton. Tour was a rude awakening, but it hardly deterred the Bengals. When they got back to LA, Columbia Records expressed interest in signing them. However, bass player Annette was ready to call it quits. Her boyfriend had started a group called Blood on the Saddle. It was more country, which she found appealing, and she'd have a chance to sing lead vocals. The band agreed the chemistry had never been totally right, and they parted ways fairly amicably. Vicky was nervous about finding a replacement for Annette, though. If they rushed the search, they might wind up with someone who had worse chemistry with the group, and if they went too slow the Bengals might lose Columbia's interest. Now, numerous sources say Columbia Records found Michael Steele for the Bengals. Even the Encyclopedia of Popular Music says this. But this isn't what happened. Michael was big into the Paisley Underground. She'd grown up doing skits and Beatles wigs, and the first record she'd ever bought was the Beach Boys' Fun, Fun, Fun. One of the appeals of the Paisley Underground and the Bangs in particular, was their fidelity to their 60s influences. She was friendly with the Bangs, so when Vicky and Debbie's other roommate, Spock, mentioned that they were looking for a fourth roommate and, oh, by the way, the Bangs might be replacing their bass player soon, Michael jumped at the chance to move in. It was one of the few times in my life that I did a totally calculated thing and said, I really like this band. Michael knew from seeing the Bangs and interacting with them socially, playing with them wasn't going to be like playing with the Runaways. They were serious about their craft and shared her influences, and they projected different attitudes than the Runaways. 
She didn't worry about proving herself to them in the same ways she often did with men either. While Michael wasn't positive Annette would leave, she was damn sure she'd take her spot if she did. So she moved in with Vicky and Debbie. How did Spock's invitation get attributed to Columbia Records? At the time, Spock was working for Columbia in artist development, a job she earned because she always knew the who's who of the L.A. music scene. Working at Columbia was her occupation, but music was Spock's life, to the point where some women have called Spock their rock mentor. When she told Michael that they were looking for a roommate and there might be a chance to replace Annette, Spock wasn't doing it on behalf of Columbia. She was doing it because Michael was a woman Spock enjoyed, who the Peterson sisters also enjoyed, and who was committed to rock and roll. Like so many women in rock history, Spock was the social lubricant that made this possible. Maybe this seems like a small detail to nitpick over, but this kind of clumsiness is one of the ways women's contributions to music gets overlooked. Now, Michael wasn't an immediate shoo-in to replace Annette. Even though they knew her as a roommate, she actually had to beg Vicky and Debbie to let her audition. Sitting down with Susanna, they asked Michael to describe her dream band. Probably something like the Yardbirds with Fairport Convention vocals. Wait, was that not basically the Bengals? As soon as Michael played, they couldn't imagine the band without her. Vicky remembers her audition as totally hot. With Michael added to the lineup, the Bengals signed to Columbia Records. Come fall of 1984, they were opening for Cyndi Lauper, who exploded as one of Columbia's biggest acts. Lopper even included the Bengals in her video for the Goonies theme song, The Goonies Are Good Enough. While their star didn't skyrocket as quickly as they'd hoped, the Bengals did grab the attention of Prince. He offered them the lyrics to Manic Monday, which became the first number one from their second album, Different Light. In fact, it was their first number one period. Their second single from the album, Walk Like an Egyptian, became Billboard's number one single of 1987. The album included three other chart toppers too, and the rest, as they say, is history. When the Bengals were coming up in the world, music critics referred to them as recycled pop history. Could they really lean into the 60s vibe and still sound fresh? Could they really make people care about a sound that had so many obvious influences? In one interview, Michael pointed out that people like Tom Petty and the Pretenders had transcended their 60s sound just fine. Wasn't everyone a pastiche of influences? And in the end, the Bengals have the last laugh. Because one of the most impressive things about them is the stay power of their music. Officially, they broke up in 1989, but they reformed in 1998 and have toured multiple times under various iterations since. They've performed together for a really long time, and their music has a timeless quality. It's been on soundtracks as early as Less Than Zero and as recently as Stranger Things. But it's also impressive how they brought real female perspective to the 60s girl group while working in the democratic tradition of bands like the Beatles. 
rock and roll is indebted to the 60s girl group. For example, the Shangri-Las turned the image of teen women sneaking off on the back of boyfriends' motorcycles into a generational icon. As writer Hilary Ashton once pointed out, the Ronettes used their pointed choreography, sultry outfits, cat-eye makeup, and thick New York accents to assert a sense of autonomy and even subversion into their act. Everyone from the Ramones to Shannon and the Clams has cited a 60s girl group as an influence. But all the well-known girl groups sang songs written by men about what men thought women care about or should care about. And these songs were soundtracked by music played by men. We know the Bengals weren't the first all-female band to write their own lyrics or play their own instruments, but they presented a girl group rooted in that sensibility where the height of your hair or the shortness of your skirt could be an act of rebellion. Their songs were authentic in the sense that they weren't lyrics betraying what men thought women want. They came directly from women. Women expressing their own needs, heartbreaks, ambitions, desires. Their sound was trippy, feminine, and wild. Music that said, you can like Joni Mitchell and still rock hard. It took this space men had designated for women in rock history and really reclaimed it for women. Who's to say if Fowley ever wrapped his brain around the magic of the Bengals? I'm sure he appreciated how much money they made, because he recognized their success as an opportunity to market his old Mickey Steele recordings. In 1993, high on some combination of the Bengals' lingering fame and Runaway's nostalgia, Fowley released a handful of the Mickey-fronted demo tracks. As Mickey expressed in a written interview, Kim continues to make money off of me and various other unfortunates who were young enough not to know any better. Those demo tracks were packaged as the Runaways Born to be Bad. According to Amazon reviewers, there's some prophecy in the name. Many describe it as unlistenable because it's so cheaply recorded. Of course, it's usually only Runaways diehards who even make it to the Mickey tracks. In most people's minds, the Runaways are exclusively Joan Jett, Lita Ford, Sandy West, Jackie Fox, and Cherie Curry. But that is for another episode. Join me next week as we dive into Cherie and Jackie's arrival to the group. We'll talk about the conflicting origin stories of Cherry Bomb, the Runaways' best-known track, see the comings and goings of some more members, and address a question that looms over any teen group. How did the parents sign on? All that and more next episode. This podcast is written and produced by Miko Caporell. That's me. Today's history was brought to life with the help of our special guests. In order of appearance, Clementine Wink played Susanna Hoffs, Eli Harvey came back as Sandy West, Josh Watkins reprised his role as Fast Freddy Patterson, J.R. Nelson was our heckler, Scott Plant played Kim Fowley, and K.T. Hawbaker played Michael Steele. To learn more about today's episode, check out our website, badreputationpod.com. There you'll find information about our sources and bonuses like images, articles, and videos. 
Rock history is very visual, with lots of fun trivia that does not fit into single episodes. So you can find us on Instagram too, at badreputationpod. If you have some extra money to throw around, you can support the show on Patreon. Or Patreon, I'm really not sure how to say it. I would like to dive into rare history, I would like to license music from the bands I talk about. Can you help? Consider becoming a patron. If you don't have some extra bucks, that's okay, I don't either. Just telling someone about the show really helps. Tweet it, Facebook it, email it, make a flyer, and post it on a coffee shop bulletin board. Every plug for Bad Reputation goes a long way in helping people learn about women in rock. Thank you so much for listening to Bad Reputation, and I will see you next week.